Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Hello, everyone. Good to see you. Good to see you and you up there. I, I secretly love the layout in here. Like, being able to, to do this feels so much more personal. And I can also randomly do this when I want to scare someone. Uh, it has been, if you're familiar with Kaya at all, uh, it has been a particularly hard season for folks. Uh, with the loss of family members and uh, on top of just just everything else, right? Just 2020, right? Now, now there's two different ways of looking at 2020. Uh, the first one is, is to say it's the worst, this is the worst year. This is awful. This is very bad. Okay, I hate 2020. And the other way of looking at it is to look at all the things that, have, that we've faced and say to ourselves that this is not in vain. This is not empty. God has, God has a greater purpose. And I can actually learn to say to myself, self, this has been one of the most sobering and impactful years of my entire life. And it's teaching me how to have faith like I've never had it before. And, um, and so I think that's, that's why I, I still feel very compelled by uh, the Remnant series that we're in, right? Because, because I think the timing is right. I think the timing is right. I think all of this is, is working itself out to sobering us and reminding us that we have a purpose in this earth. And it will go against the grain of the norm. We're, we're, we're going to go against what we see happening in our world. If the trend is going away from God, we're going to be working against that tide. Does that make sense? And that's not an easy thing to do, and it's something that we need to prepare ourselves for. And we prepare ourselves for that through God's Word. And so we've been talking about what it means to be a righteous remnant, a remnant, a, a people set apart, devoted to the work of God, going against the grain of what we see as normal in our world. Not an easy thing to do. Now, after studying all these different characters in God's Word, we're beginning to see themes between the characters. We're beginning to see things that are true among all of the men that we've looked at as righteous remnant, men who are particularly righteous in an age that's wicked. And one of the things we've seen is that they're set apart. They're set apart. They're, un they're unique. Okay? They look different than their culture. Okay? They look like pilgrims. They look like strangers. They don't fit in. Now, I already know that that's just not hard for me in general. Right? Um, you know, there's a lot of you in this room who can relate to this. If you are culturally more um, what they would refer to as alternative, then, then you often find yourself outside the norm anyway. I don't go into Panera Bread usually with my hair long and my beard long. All the old ladies tend to look and say, well, that guy, he's unique. <laughs> right? 
And so I'm not talking about in terms of the flesh, being set apart in terms of the flesh or being unique in terms of the flesh. I'm talking about being unique in terms of the posture and character of our lives, right? And, and the way that we hold ourselves and the way that we talk and the way that we speak and the things that we purpose ourselves with, we need to be set apart the way that men like Job and, and Daniel and Noah and Elijah were. The other thing is that the righteous remnant always has a very focused message. There's something that they're trying to convey with their lives. It's not good enough for them to just be different in terms of what they believe. There's, I mean, that's true of many, many different religions, isn't it? We think about world religion, and we look at different types of faith systems, and we can see, well, th those people look unique, and they look set apart. But the question is, do they have a message worth conveying? Okay, Noah had a message worth conveying. Turn and repent and save your lives, right? And so these men, the thing that we see over and over again, and we see this in Elijah too, is that he has a message of repentance. He's not just living a unique life out in the wilderness. Okay, he's got a message that he knows needs to be conveyed to the nation of Israel, and that is repent and turn towards a holy God. But the last thing, and the thing that we're going to look at most specifically, is that these men had spiritual discipline. There were disciplines in their life, things that they committed themselves to in their quiet time, that set them apart, that made them particularly different. And the one that we're going to talk about today is prayer, is prayer and the importance of prayer. We're going to look at Elijah's prayer life and discuss what makes it so effective and so fervent. And as we do so, I want you to consider whether or not you believe that your personal prayer life has fervency, power, and passion, or if your prayer life is ineffective, and it feels as though when you, when you take time to pray or to speak to God, it feels as though your prayers are just hitting the ceiling. If your prayers feel vain, if they feel empty, if they feel hollow, or if you're asking yourself like, Lord, whenever I come to you with a prayer, why is it not being answered? Why does it not seem as though I'm, I'm getting an answer in return? And so we're going we're gonna to ask ourselves hard questions about prayer today. Uh, but we got some, we got some way, a ways to go before we get there. Let's pray real quick. Is everybody with me? Okay. I really, the balcony seating is particularly cool. Do you guys feel cool? Seems fun. We need more seats, though, don't we? We'll pray about that. We're out of space, y'all. Six months from now, we might not have a home, okay? So if you've stopped praying because you like it here, <laughs> I would ask that you would continue to pray, okay? Because we don't, we don't know, we don't know what, what the Lord wants us to do, and, and we, do need a, we do need a space so that we can grow because people are getting saved. I don't know if you know that. People are, are accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior weekly in our ministry. We've got to have a place to put them and to train them and invest in them and love them. So everybody, everybody needs a, a space to call home. It's good. Um, I feel at home when I'm with you guys. Yeah? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you, and um, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the friendships that you've made in this group, in this family. And, uh, Lord, we're, we're aware of the fact that we as your people uh, live in a world that uh, is trying to sift us, and uh, they want us to conform to the image 
um, that they've set for us, which is idolatry. And uh, a lot of times, we unknowingly, um, in our just our lack of faith, in our in our weakness of resolve, we find ourselves worshiping uh, at the at the feet of false gods. It's like we just like our eyes are you know in moments awaken to the fact that we often find ourselves so distant from you and your altar. And, and so, Lord, I just ask that you would help us. And it, today you would teach us to pray. And, uh, Lord, I do thank you for this family. I thank you for Kaya and the ministry. I thank you for what you're doing. Uh, Lord, we never want to take that for granted. But, Lord, we need more room at the table. And so, Lord, would you continue to give us space, the space that we need to invite people to pull up to the table and to, and to dine with us, to feast with us, to celebrate. And uh, we love your word, and we want to consume it, and we want to do it in a way that's honoring to you. We want our lives to be changed. Um, we, need, we need your word to give us the energy to do the work. And so, Lord, make us a, a purposeful people. Make us a righteous remnant. Just, not just a remnant in hiding, but a remnant that is, uh, that is actively at work. And so, please, help us. We need you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, this is so good. This, we're going to talk about Mount Carmel today. And so we're going to see Elijah going toe-to-toe with the enemy, and that's always fun. We've got to get something from it. It can't just be cool. We've got to get something from it. And so let's start here in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 16. We find all of our characters kind of coming together uh, to talk. And so Obadiah went to meet Ahab, remember Obadiah from last time we were together, first of all, thanks Nick, I didn't mention that, thank you, yeah, that was awesome last week um, to have you preaching, and so we want to say thank you for that, but, but two weeks ago we were talking about Obadiah, um, and so Obadiah does what Elijah asked him to do, he goes and he gets King Ahab and he brings Ahab to meet Elijah, and Ahab went to meet Elijah, and it came to pass, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? So Ahab's first words, I mean, he hasn't seen Elijah for three years. There's a, there's a famine and a drought in the land. Things aren't good. And the whole time, this, for the last three years, they've been going to village to, uh, from village to village looking for Elijah, waiting for this moment. Ahab has been waiting for his opportunity to confront Elijah and to deal with him. And the first thing that he says is, Are you, you're the guy. Aren't you the guy? You're the one that's been troubling this land. Now, on one hand, we could say, man, praise God. Elijah is a troublemaker. We ought to be troublemakers for the name of God as well. But the other thing is, it's really interesting to me that all this while, Ahab has been attributing the problems in Israel to Elijah. Which is absurd, isn't it? This has very, very little to do with Elijah. And so many people today struggle to see how the choice of their sin results in the consequences that they face. Isn't it amazing to see our friends and family, all they do is sin, and then they turn around and they're like, well, why is my life crap? And then they get angry at you because you're the one that's telling them that their life is crap. Like, hey, you know there's something you can do about that. Shut up, I hate you. I'm like, my siblings, they used to give me such a hard time when I started following Christ. I used to get called, oh, you just, they used to always say this, you, uh, you just think you're so perfect. Oh, man, that would just kill me, right? Anybody have siblings that aren't following the Lord and they, like, they treat you that way? They, they, it's tough, right? 
But the real issue here is not you. The real issue is the fact that sin begets consequence. It's basic cause and effect. You reap what you sow. And Ahab has failed to see that his sin has caused the drought. Now I think more appropriately for us as Christians, when we hear statements like that, when we hear things like when we get blamed for other people's problems, or people get upset with us, we can so often take that and own it in ways that are completely inappropriate. We can be tempted to put what they're saying upon our shoulders and it burden us even more. Anybody ever experienced that? We might make other people's problems about us. Which is what they want. Because they don't, they don't want to own the problem themselves. If it can be someone else's fault as well, well then they feel better about their sin. And so if they can somehow hate you for what you believe, then it makes them feel all the much better. But sometimes we own it. We let them trick us into that way of thinking. We let them make us the enemy. Or we might say, you know, I could have I done more. Anybody ever said that to themselves when you're thinking about people that you love? And you think to yourself, well, I, I could have done things differently. If I would have just done things differently, maybe things would have turned out differently. Maybe the consequences would have been different. And the truth is, sin just produces awful stuff. When people sin, the consequence of that is just always bad. And there will always be judgment, and that's not on you. I don't, you know, I mentioned this not too long ago, I think, but, but you remember when the nation of Israel wanted uh, a king, right? And things have been going so well. There was like 40 years of peace in the land of Israel, and, 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 and the people came to Samuel, and they said, well, we want a king. This isn't sufficient for us. We want to be like the other nations. And remember how Samuel felt about that? He felt so awful because he let the nation of Israel convince him that it had something to do with him. And this was, actually, this was actually between the nation of Israel and God. And so we need to be really careful about the way we let people treat us. Because if we're going to preach the gospel... It's going to be divisive, and it's going to be offensive, and that should have nothing to do with you. That should have everything to do with the fact that, well, the cross is offensive. Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is in and of itself an offense, and people hate it. And, and you as the ambassador are going to be the recipient of their disdain, just like Elijah. Ultimately, though, our responsibility is to just to show people that their sin has created separation between them and a holy God. So listen to Elijah's response to Ahab. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel. Right? That's the right statement. I have not troubled Israel. But thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. People have to own their sin. And that's the thing about salvation. You know, I don't know how much you've ever thought about this, but there is no salvation outside of repentance, right? You get that, right? Then until people can recognize the fact that they are sinners in need of a holy God and that they have offended Him, well, then they can't come to a place where they know Him. They can't receive His forgiveness unless they recognize that there's something that needs to be forgiven. Does that make sense? Sin results in judgment. 
And for us, the knowledge that sin results in judgment ought to cause us to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus Christ, inviting him to forgive us and intervene on our behalf. Now, let's look and see how this conversation continues on. Now, therefore, send, this is Elijah speaking, he said, now, therefore, send, send, and gather to me all Israel unto the Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. Okay, so what's going on here? So what we see here is Ahab is listening to Elijah because he wants this drought to end. And so he's not really sure what Elijah's up to here, but he knows Elijah has a plan. And so Elijah says, go and fetch all the prophets of Baal, bring them here, and bring the nation of Israel so that we have an audience. Okay, so you know that things are about to get weird, right? Like things are about to get interesting. Now Elijah has a very important question for the nation of Israel once they show up. So once, once they get there, okay, the, the crowd has gathered, they've come together, all the nation of Israel, right, that's a lot of people, and they're all there at Mount Carmel, and they're watching and waiting to see what happens, and Elijah asks a very, very important question that I think is relevant for us as well. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the Lord answered him not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I even I only remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Okay, so let's, let's break this down. This question, I think, is super important. And I think it's one that we have to ask ourselves as well. How long halt ye between two opinions? For many of us, we are stuck between two opinions. Okay? Now, for the lost world, obviously, there is fracturing all around the board, right? We look at the world and we hear their opinions. They change from week to week. If, it, if anything is proven that, COVID has proven that, is that people's opinions change every week. And it, and it falls to the whims of what they're hearing, right? They're influenced by people all around them. And so people's ideas, their concepts of who they are, their identities, they're always changing. And people are constantly trapped between multiple opinions. Now, ultimately, all of those multiple opinions can be boiled down to people standing between two opinions. Two opinions. They're the only ones that exist. Okay? Either God is true, and he's worth worshiping, or you ought to go worship whatever you want to worship. There's only two opinions. And our world, our lost world, the world that surrounds us is faced with those opinions. And, and you need to bring them to a place where they're asking themselves, how long will they halt there? How long will they be stuck there? How long will you continue to choose a way in which there's no peace? But I think Christians have to ask themselves the same question. Particularly in Laodicea, because what is Laodicea? But a people who are stuck between two opinions. Somewhere between hot and cold. I mean, that's all Laodicea is, right? And so, you know, 
we've got to check ourselves in terms of our realities. You know, many of us are stuck between a reality of fellowship in the church and one of fellowship in the world. And in this room right now, there are people who love to be here. They love to come and be a part of what Kai is doing, to come be a part of what Midtown Baptist Temple is doing. They love the fellowship. They love the friendship. And they know that they've never seen friends as kind and as gentle and willing to listen as the ones in this room. And I know that because I've experienced the same thing. There's something really special about being a part of a church that's truly unified. But on the other hand, they're willing to leave here on Sunday and betray this fellowship to go find fellowship in the world. And they've still got the same old friends that convinced them to do the same old things. And they still find themselves doing things that they know are unbecoming of a Christian. And they're halted in two realities. One of discipleship. One of dissent. Well, yeah, I I went to to Casa Discipleship. I submitted my form. I am in a a relationship where I'm being discipled. But sometimes I like it and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I like to be instructed. Sometimes I like the teaching. Sometimes I like to submit. Sometimes I don't. And I'm halted between those two realities. One of God's word and one of worldly diversions. Oh yeah, you know, I, I like to be in the Bible, Bible study. That's fun. I like the, the community, the camaraderie. I like opening the word. It, it feels fresh to me. But when I'm at home in the morning and I wake up, the first thing I do is not get in God's word not seek his face, but to seek some sort of diversion, some sort of entertainment, some sort of distraction. Some of us are caught between addiction to the mission and addiction to alcohol and pornography. And it's that real for some of you, where it's like, I love The idea of being a part of something that has purpose. I love it. And and, and when I'm doing it, it's the only thing I want to do. But the next day, you get home from work, and the first thing you do is you you open a bottle of alcohol, or you smoke a joint. Or you call that girlfriend or that boyfriend that you can't help but call them. Or you get online and you start scrolling, you start looking at things you shouldn't be looking at. And how can those two things be compatible? You know in your heart that they can't be. But somehow you find yourself halted between two opinions and you don't know what to do. You feel stuck. How long halt ye between two opinions? How do we deal with double-mindedness? both in ourselves and the people that we surround ourselves with. What do we do when we are torn between two worlds, two opinions? Okay, so this is what Elijah did. Is he let God prove what's true. Elijah let God prove out what was true, what opinion truly mattered. He, was not af- he wasn't afraid of that. You understand? He wasn't afraid of that. And neither should we be. So let's look, let's look on. Let's start, well, actually, let's start with our key point. We need a key point. We've gone too far without a key point. Don't you think? Let's, let's do the key point first. Key point number one 
the righteous remnant, is not afraid to put the burden of proof on God. Also, you think, you're thinking to yourself, thinking about your family members, you're having a hard time reaching. They're, they're halted between two opinions. You think to yourself, how could they ever get to a place where they believe and they just give up on the Laodicean life? Or they just give up on worldliness and they just recognize that they need to repent and turn to, towards, to, towards the Lord, right? And you ask yourself, how could they ever get there? But the righteous remnant knows that the burden of proof is not on you. It wasn't on Elijah. It wasn't on anything he could say, anything that he could do. The burden of proof was on God himself. Either God was true and would prove it out, or he wasn't. And too many of us are afraid to pose those types of questions to the people around us. Because maybe you're a little bit convinced that God's not going to show up. Maybe you've somewhere around, uh, along the way in a, in a life of ministry and busyness have convinced yourself that it's on you to prove that God is true. And it's not. It's not. So this is what, this is what happens here. So you've got all these people standing around. The nation of Israel is watching. He asks them to consider the two opinions that they're stuck between. And then he throws down the gauntlet. So the first one, listen, the first part was a personal challenge to the nation of Israel, Israel right? It was a personal ta- challenge to their hearts. But now we've got a spiritual challenge taking place. Let them therefore give us two bullocks. And let them choose one bullock for themselves. Those being the false prophets, the prophets of Baal. And cut it in pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under it. And I, will, and I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the, and the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Okay, so do we understand what's happening here? Okay. So, this is a, this is a duel of the prophets. Alright, there's a, there's a challenge here. Okay, I like westerns a lot. I love the idea of a good old-fashioned duel, good versus evil. Yeah, I like that. And so here they are on Mount Carmel, facing each other down. And the challenge is, you're going to take a bull, you're going you're to cut it up in pieces, and you're going to put it on an altar. And you're going to put no, no fire underneath it. Okay, and we're going to pray, and we're going to see which God lights the fire. We're going to see which one shows up today. And the one that shows up is the one that's right. And so this is all done as a matter of proving out what is true so that the nation of Israel would no longer be stuck between two opinions. So Elijah throws down the gauntlet and challenge against the wicked, wicked God Baal. And he wants the two opinions to prove themselves out experientially. Now verse 25. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves and dress it first. For ye are many. Okay, so he points out the fact that there's many of these prophets. And call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it. And called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. That's odd. Right? There's no voice, nor any that answered. 
and they leaped upon the altar which was made. Okay, so now, they're leaping up and down, and they're throwing themselves upon the altar, they're praying out to their god Baal, and nothing's happening. Not even a voice. No, nothing is showing up. All right? Now, I want to point out that this is what counterfeit worship looks like. And what we're going to see here is absolute chaos, fervency, zeal, beyond belief. Like, I mean, these guys are dead serious about proving that their God is true, which is exactly what the lost world does. It's not like the lost world isn't zealous about what they believe. They get a hold of these concepts and these philosophies, and they get behind them. They own them. They believe in them. That becomes their identity. Just because it's false doesn't mean it's not true in their mind. And they give their, their whole lives to being the thing that they believe, just like we do. But here's the deal about counterfeit worship. Is that counterfeit worship is never calm or peaceable. Counterfeit worship always looks like frenzy. It always looks like chaos. There's never order. There's never peaceableness. There's never gentleness there. It looks like, like pure chaos. Now, I, wanna, I, I really like this next part, and I wish I could like, pause here, but this is, the, this is the best burn in all of Scripture. Okay, so what we're about to see here is what Elijah says is literally, I mean, there's other, like I really like, I really like when John beats Peter to the, to the tomb. Like I really like, that's a good burn. There's good burns in Scripture. There's some funny stuff. That's, Paul's not afraid of, of talking trash. I love that. And when I played basketball in high school, believe it or not, I did that. I was an athlete once. But I was a trash talker. I liked to, to talk trash. Okay? I liked to talk trash. And so in a basketball game, I would often find myself, you know, in the midst of a dialogue with players, you know, and it was fun, right, it was fun, it was fun to get in their head, but you know, um, it's always, talking trash is the most fun when you know that you're going to win, it's always easier to do, right, it's always easier to do, and so Elijah here, he, he already knows in his mind who his God is, and it makes him unafraid to speak up, and I like it, all right, so let's read what he has to say, and it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud, for he is a God, yeah? <laughs> like, he's, he's a God, right? Like Baal, he's a God, cry aloud. You know, either he is talking, or he's pursuing, or he's in a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth, and must be awaked. Okay, so what is he saying? He's like, oh, maybe he's in a conversation. Maybe he's on the phone right now. <laughs> All right, so just, you know. Keep being the squeaky wheel. Eventually he'll get off the phone. Just keep nagging him. Maybe he's taking a nap. Or maybe he's going for a walk. And so this just made them, obviously, more angry. Now look at, look at how chaotic this becomes. When the world is trying to prove that they're right, and they have no leg to stand on. You know, the, you know that, that in the world's philosophy, it doesn't matter which one it is, there's many, many different philosophies to support worldliness, okay? It doesn't matter what it is. They rely on truths that aren't absolute, right? Everything hinges on them 
uh, making invalid arguments, standing on presumption. They have to make presumptive arguments or the arguments won't hold up. That's a pitch for the speech and reasoning class, by the way. Okay, so LFBI students. But that's, but that's the way it works in the world. And so, so because their arguments are invalid and they're always based on just fulfilling the flesh, when you pose an argument against them, the only thing they can do is grow more fervent and frenzied, more dogmatic in the way that they think. They get upset, they get agitated, cried aloud and, and cut themselves. They began cutting themselves after their manner with knives and, and lassets till the blood rushed out upon them. It's pretty wild. And it came to pass when midday, midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any answer nor anything or any that regarded. Okay, so noon came, nothing happened. It's just a big heap of bloody, tired prophets. Nothing. No answer from their God. Now, I, you know, I, I, I don't know how much you know about the devil and demonism, but uh, I actually believe that, uh, that if Satan wanted to have some sort of miraculous moment here, if it, he, he probably could have do, done it, right? Like, I think something could have happened here. But in the arm wrestling match between God and the devil, God's, God's always able to just play with the devil, right? So while it might appear as though the devil has an upper hand over the life of Job, nothing happens unless God allows it, correct? So in this moment, in this wrestling match, God is, God is silencing the devil. And so the story continues, and we're going to look here. Okay, so here, here's, here's where we're going to shift gears a little bit. So we've got the story, we've painted the picture, correct? We're on Mount Carmel. The prophets, they, they had no luck. Now what we're going to watch here is something very, very important about Elijah, and it's the, it's the stuff that we need to walk away with today. Because a righteous remnant is nothing if they don't know how to pray. Because if we don't know how to pray, then we, we don't know how to put the onus on God. We don't, we don't know how to make him the proof bearer if we're not praying. And so we have to learn how to pray. So let's look very carefully at Elijah's life and let's learn how to pray for ourselves, can we? And Elijah said unto all the people, come near unto me. And all the people came near unto me, or unto him, sorry. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid it on the wood. Okay, so listen to me. What's going on here? Elijah calls the nation to gather around him because first and foremost, he was, in, he was concerned with them observing his life. Okay, so, so this is what I want to point out real quick is that when we engage God in faith and prayer, we ought to be inviting the lost to watch what God is doing. 
Okay, so Elijah's like saying, okay, come, okay, nation. They had their chance. The world had its opportunity. Now come, come gather near because I want, to, I want you to observe from my life that my God is true, that God is true and every man is a liar. I want you to see it. I want you to witness it. He's concerned with his witness. He's concerned with the faith that he has being observable. And he asked them to draw near and watch the sincerity at which he works to serve his God. So, so look, he's in, no, he's in no hurry and he's not anxious. He wants the people to watch him and see that serving the Lord is something worth doing right and with precision. So what's he do? He gathers 12 stones. So they, listen, we're talking about the whole nation here, right? They're all there. And he's like, come near. All right? You think that he'd have some sort of magic trick. Hey, guys, come on. I want to show you something. No, he gathers everybody together, and he starts picking up rocks. And I don't know how long this took him, right? But he's taking these rocks. He picks up 12, 12 for the nation of Israel, because there's a picture here. He's picturing the restoration of the people. And he's saying, He's saying, watch how my God restores. And he picks these, these 12 stones. Okay, not hewn stones, raw stones. Right? Nothing manufactured by, by the hands of a man. Stones from the countryside, raw and imperfect. And he takes them and he starts to stack them. And with each rock that he places in place, he is rebuilding the altar that had been forsaken and he's showing the people what restoration looks like. And he does it with calm and with peace. And the altar is rebuilt. And then he goes and he takes the bullock and he slays it. And he cuts it. And he lays it with precision on the altar. He does it with complete peace in his heart. Listen to me. He's showing them how opposite his faith is to what they just got done witnessing. They just got done witnessing insanity. And now here we have a man who's just very peaceably, very surely, very confidently building an altar and setting the pieces in their place. And it reminds us that the world is watching us and they want to know that what we're doing is worth doing with excellence. That we don't believe this just flippantly. That we don't do ministry just because it's fun. But we're, we're here and we're doing the work of God because we believe it. And it's true. So he's drawing a contrast between the worship of the prophets and his own worship. And he's doing it with calmness and with measure in his behavior. And we ought to do the same thing. Our lives ought to be filled with composure. If you're, if you're a believer and you know Jesus Christ, your life ought to not have the same level of anxiety and fear as the lost world. And so when people look at you, they ought to see something is different. They ought to be able to, to, to observe your life and say, well, whatever he believes, it seems to be working. Does that make sense? This leads us to our next key point. 
Our faith may be measured by our countenance in the midst of a challenge. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I was Elijah, I would be tempted to be a little nervous. Yeah? One man, an entire nation, 450 prophets, King Ahab watching, one dude building an altar. Right? I mean, I, if, if anybody should be afraid in this moment, you would think he would be. But he's full of faith. And how do we know he's full of faith? Well, we can tell by how calm he is. And people can measure our faith by our countenance when things are difficult. The lost world ought to be able to see, well, look at all the stuff that he's going through or she's going through, and they ought to be able to see why is it that that person has so much peace and calm despite their circumstances? But confidence in God can also be measured by how big what we're trusting God for is. So, so, so God, our, our, our faith might be measured in our countenance and our character and how we hold ourselves, but our faith can also be measured by how big our faith is. So the next question is, well, what are, what are you trusting God for? Can the world see, can people see that you're trusting God for big things? I mean, the smaller your faith and the smaller your vision and the smaller your spiritual appetite, well, the smaller your God is. Doesn't that seem reasonable for the lost world to look at you and say, well, you know, as is his faith, be it unto him. The world would get that. And they look at your, your life and they consider your faith. And if your faith is puny, and what you're believing for, God, for, you know, we're believing in God for all kinds of stuff. A good job. That's good. But listen to me. That's small potatoes. A good job. Graduating college. Finding a husband. Finding a wife. Oh, yeah. You're trusting God for real big things there. I mean, it's like, okay, we worship a God who owns the entire universe. And we're, we're concerned like, we're super concerned about whether or not, you know, can I afford a mortgage? I don't know. Should I rent? And these, like, things, like, concern us. And the world is watching to see what kind of faith you have. And if the world sees, oh, you know, you know uh, I see that they're trusting for a, you know, God for a, a, a new house. Because that's interesting. It's a real interesting faith, that faith that, about materialistic things. Boy, their faith must be real big. That God must be worth serving. Now, see, here's the deal. Elijah is trusting that God is going to send fire from heaven, and everybody's watching. And so people can tell what your faith is. They can measure your faith based on what it is you're, you're trusting the Lord for. And so I've made a habit over the years of just saying, eat to lost people, or to save people, doesn't matter to me. Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pastor, yeah, uh-huh. Uh, and, and this is what I do, is I trust God that he's going to use this ministry of college and young adult people that I, I serve with, he's going to use them to change the whole world. That's a very matter of fact for me. And it starts with the city, and I believe that, that God wants to see the entire city saved, and I've been watching him do it, so it's not like even a thing to me. I'm I believe that he's going to do it. 
Now that's the kind of faith that I want the lost world to see in my life. If I'm talking to my lost family members and I'm saying, yeah, my wife and I were praying, you know, Eva and I are praying about, you know, uh, uh, you know whether or not she could be a stay-at-home mom to see if our finances would work out that way. Okay, well, we might be trusting the Lord for that. But I don't identify my faith on such small, trivial things. I identify my faith with the crazy, outlandish things. Because you know what? What I believe is crazy and outlandish. And I want people to see that. I want people to know that about me. Verse 33, And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the wood, and said, Fill four barrels with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran down about the altar. And he, fill, and, and, and he filled the trench also with water. So Elijah was so sure of God that he called the people to pour, pour 12 barrels of water all over the sacrifice and the wood and down into the trench. See, here's the deal. Elijah knew that God, that the, here, listen, he knew that the God that kept him and sustained him at the brook was the God that would send the fire from heaven. See, he already, he already knew that God would be there for him because God was there for him for three, three years sustaining him in the wilderness. I mean, we, have we not seen God do stuff in our lives that prove the fact that what we... Like, it's, it's observable. We can observe the things that God has done in our lives, and we can say to ourselves, well, hasn't God proven himself that no matter how big the thing is, that God can overcome it? And so Elijah has no problem. Just put the water. He's like, just get the barrels and pour the water, and he put it, on, put it all over everything. That's pretty amazing that he's, he's got so much faith in his God that he knew that the God who lives in fire will send the fire. You know that about God, by the way, right? God, that God lives in fire. <laughs> right? He, he lives in the fire of the burning bush. He speaks from, from inside its contents. And he, and he dwells inside of a pillar of fire that guides the nation of Israel by night. He dwells in fire. He's in the business of fire. And so it doesn't matter how much water there is, that God is still going to show up and do the thing that he does because he knows that nothing will impede the God of fire. What seemed preposterous and impossible to the crowd would make absolutely no difference to God. So what can we learn from this kind of confidence in the Lord? Elijah knew that every apparent hurdle was just another opportunity for God to display his majesty. But yet for us, every hurdle just seems impossible, doesn't it? Oh, I was praying about this thing, but then this hurdle showed up. We're so, we're so dumb, right? Our faith is so little. You know, we were praying about this thing as a Bible study, but then this thing happened and we stopped praying about it because, you know, we stopped believing We do this, don't we? You know, I, I, I was praying for my sister to come out of sin. But then 
she, she married her girlfriend, and it seems as though it's impossible now. How little faith do I have when the hurdles show up? And what seemed possible just like suddenly becomes impossible. We've forgotten that nothing is impossible. So what does the confident believer do? Well, they pray. We're so bad at praying. Prayer is such an insignificant part of the Christian life, it seems like. Not only do we neglect prayer, but we often make prayers that can't be heard. Do you know that's the thing? That you could pray prayers that can't be heard? You know, it's said of Elijah in James chapter 5, verse 16, that he made a very unique kind of prayer, a prayer that was so particularly effective in God's ears that it, it's worth noting. James 5, 16 says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That, that phrase is, is made in relation to the man Elijah. That the effectual and fervent prayers of a righteous man avail much. They get a lot done. So what is required of the, one, of the ones uh, who are praying so that we know that our prayers are being heard? Because sometimes prayers are refused. So we're going to talk about, real quick, three, three ways in which we need to be praying. Okay? And things that we need to know in order to pray right before God. Okay, the very first thing is this. We need to deal with sin before we pray. If we want our prayers to be heard, we've got to go to God and make sure that we're resolving the sin issues in our life because those pose a real legitimate hurdle to our prayers to God. They get in the way. Sin gets in the way and it makes our relationship with God murky. Have you ever felt that way with a friend? Like your relationship just seems like, I don't know how they feel right now. Things are weird, right? Ever, ever had that in a relationship? Things feel weird? Well, there's only one thing that really makes a relationship with God feel weird, and that's you calling his kid, but choosing to sin. You, you saying you're a child of God, but you choosing to do whatever the heck you want. That makes your relationship with God murky. And he says, he says this thing in Psalm 66, 18. If I regard, this is David speaking, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That's the truth. Everyone sins. But listen, sin as a lifestyle alienates us from the heart of God. And we cannot regard sin. We've got to let go of it. We can't retain it. We can't hold on to it. We can't keep it bottled up like this. We've got to let go. We've got to deal with it. Now listen, this is exactly the instruction from, from James chapter 5, verse 16 about Elijah. Okay, listen to what the whole, the whole verse says. Confess your faults one to another and pray one, uh, pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And so this is what the passage is saying. Oh, you want to pray like Elijah? Good for you. Start with dealing with your sin. That's what this passage teaches. You want to pray like the remnant? Start by confessing the stuff in your life that's making your relationship with God murky. So that's the first thing. Deal with sin. Is everybody with me? We've... 
We've got a couple more things here to cover, okay? So we know we need to deal with sin. So that's key point number three. To be heard by God, we must resolve sin. To be heard by God, we must resolve sin. Real straightforward. Verse 36. The next thing we need is a faithful approach. This is what verse 36 says uh, in, in 1 Kings 18. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near. Okay? So first of all, I want, you to, I want to point something out to you real quick. Do you guys remember that Elijah and Moses meet Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Just before a sacrifice takes place? Whoa. Like before the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ's life takes place, Elijah is meeting with Jesus on a mount. It's, I, to me, that's wonderful. It's wonderful to me. And it points us to a greater sacrifice than the one that we're about to see. Doesn't it? It reminds us this sacrifice that's about to take place, this fire that's about to come down from heaven, is only a shadow of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ was going to make on, on, on Golgotha. And Elijah wants to meet with Jesus just before that sacrifice takes place. That's powerful to me. Elijah was a un unique dude. But what's even more amazing than that is that even though Elijah expected fire to fall upon the sacrifice, it says that he came near. Okay, I don't know, I I'm a dude, uh, and so many, many times in my life, I have poured large amounts of flammable uh, liquids on surfaces of things and thrown matches on them. Okay, now generally when you do that, okay, you do it like this. <laughs> because generally, you don't want to be near the fire when things combust. Are you with me? Okay, but Elijah's different. It says here that Elijah comes near to the fire. He didn't fear. Why? Because this is the God that faithfully sustained him at the brook. This is the God that he knows. This is the God that's his friend. This is the God that he's close to. This is the God that would send three men into a fiery furnace and they would be untouched by the fire. Because, because God was with them. That's this God. And here's the deal. If we desire to be heard by God, then our approach must be full of faith too. We've got to get near the fire. Our God is consuming fire. And he bids us to come near. And if we're his friends, then we can be full of faith that he has our best interest in mind, even in the midst of the fire. Key point four. To be heard by God, we must have faith to draw close. Sometimes it's hard to draw close, isn't it? Sometimes you don't want to get close to God because you don't know what it's going to mean. You don't know what's going to come of it. But it's an amazing thing 
to stand in the terror of the Lord unscathed. Isn't it? To come close to him even though you know he's so dangerous. He's so dangerous. He's terrible. There's so many unanswered questions. This is what Job was talking about. He's, he's impossible to fathom. God says to Job, were you there when I created the universe? You weren't even there. You have no idea of the power that I have. You have no idea who I really am. Come close. Come near to me. See, John knew this. The Apostle John knew this. Apostle John, where was John? He was always right there. He wanted to, he wanted to put his head on, the, on the, the bosom of Christ, on the chest of Christ. He just wanted to be close to him. He, he wanted it to be tangible. And we should want that too. I mean, do you wake up yearning to be with God? I mean, do you think, like, I just can't wait for him to come back? I can't just wait. I just can't wait to be in his presence. It's going to be so amazing. It's the only thing that consumes my thoughts and allows me to believe and to draw close to him is when I think that way. John 15, 7 says, If ye abide in me, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. He doesn't say abide with me, which seems to be the practical thing to say would be abide with me, right? Because these are people. In flesh. He's like, come abide with me. No. He tells his disciples, abide in me. And my words abide in you. And ye shall ask what ye will, and it will be done unto you. So it's crucial in prayer, in prayer for us to know that we've got to, to come close to God. We have to be near with him. We have to have the proper approach. And it has to be full of faith. Elijah the prophet this is the third thing, the right motivation. He, he needs to have the right motivation. Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. And so he prays. And this is basically what he says. Let it be known that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant. Now I'd like to get into the other stuff. We don't have time for that. But listen to what he says. Elijah knows who God is, and he knows who he is. And he wants, his motivation is for everyone else to know that too. That's his motivation. It's his motivation in prayer. It's his motivation in living. And so if we want prayers to be effective, then we need to pray prayers that are motivated by the things that motivate God. Like if we want our prayers to be effectual and fervent, well, how about you stop praying about your stuff and start praying about God's stuff? He's interested in his stuff. Like he cares about your stuff, right? Like, I guess I care about what my kids get for Christmas. I guess I kind of care about that. But it's not near as important about what I want them to be and what I want them to achieve in life. So they can come to me and they've got all these maybe little fickle, silly prayers that I'm like, okay, yeah, I, yeah, I kind of care about, yeah, let's have movie night, and yeah, I'll make you popcorn. I care about that stuff. But it means nothing compared to what I want them to be and what I want to see God do in their lives. And so we, we could be about little itty-bitty prayers, but let's pray big prayers full of faith and care about the things that God cares about. Key point. To be heard by God, we must set our heart to match his motives. Verse 37, he says, Hear me, O, o, o Lord, hear me, that this people may know 
that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. That's what he wants. That's his motivation. It's the motivation of his prayer. And so we too, if we want to be hear, heard by God, then we must set our heart to match his motives. James 4.3 says, He ask and receive not because he ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. Or when you're asking God stuff, the reason he's not listening to you and he doesn't care about all of your crap is because you're asking stuff to consume it upon your lusts. And they're vain. They're vain prayers. Those are the ones that hit the ceiling. Okay, let's look at the outcome of effectual prayer and then we'll go. Have I worn you out yet? I know Natalie's worn out. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell, and it consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal. Let none of them escape. And then he took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Okay, we're going to get to that next week. This dude slew 450 men that day. We'll talk about that next time we're together. This is what I want you to see, though. I want you to note that, that Elijah's prayer is brief. It's not a big, fanciful prayer. It doesn't take him 10 minutes. It's just a few sentences. And, it, and, and, and in so doing, in that prayer, fire comes down from heaven and proves the very thing that Elijah knew God would do. is prove himself out. And if we want God to prove himself out in the lives of people, then we need to make sure that our prayers are Right? Like, if we want God to use us, if we want God to do something in our ministry, our prayers need to be right. Our lives need to be right. We have to have the right approach. We can't be flippant with him. This is the one who sits on the throne in the, in the most northern part of the universe, watching everything, counting every hair on your head, and you're going to approach him like he's, like, your dad that you don't respect? <laughs> you're going to, like, just ask him for stuff that's, like, meaningless? You're going to be so faithless that you're going, to, you're going to go to him with all these trivial things and you're not going to go to him with full belief that he can do whatever he says he's going to do. Something's got to change. Our prayer lives need to change. If we are going to rock the nation, something has to be changing in the ways that we approach God. This, this is the way of the righteous remnant. And if that's what we're going to be, then we've got to stop looking like all the other Christians. Because listen to me, all those other prophets were hiding in caves. The other hundred prophets, they were hiding in caves. Mark 10, 27 says, And Jesus, looking upon them, said, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Our final key point, the righteous remnant experiences answered prayer because God is their strength. If you know that your prayer life is weak, if you know that your faith is weak, 
If you know that you're halted between two opinions, if any of these things are true of you this morning, come forward and repent. Do like the nation of Israel and declare who God is. Come forward, grab a hold of somebody at the end of the service as we worship, and make known the thing that you're struggling with and renew your faith again. Are you hearing me? We must be a people of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you today. We don't know how to pray. We don't know how to do anything. We don't know how to posture ourselves. We don't know how to carry ourselves. We get so anxious about everything. We're never calm. But Lord, would you meet with us and show us what it's like to have your peace? That our, our worship would look authentic. That our lives would be changed by knowing you. Be, being close to you. That our faith would be increased. And Lord, that our prayer life would be different. That we'd start trusting you for things that go way beyond us. That we start believing you and having visions for what our lives should be before you that go way beyond the small stuff like a good job and a wife or a husband or a house or, or kids or None of these things are bad. They're just not right. <laughs> we need what you want. That's what we need. So Lord, help us to, to start praying for those things. That we might match our hearts, our hearts to your own. Lord, let us be used. Let us have purpose. Let us have identity in you. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.